along in the book of Genesis. Uh, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, you can grab a Bible in the blue chair in the seat in front of you. And uh, boy, we've got a lot of text to cover this morning, two and a half chapters. So pray for me. And uh, as you're praying for me, you're also praying for yourself that we're not here for an hour as I preach through this. Genesis chapter 43. If you do not uh, have a Bible, if you've never gotten into the Bible before, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. So you just open up to the very beginning. Genesis means beginning. And uh, you're looking for chapter 40, actually go to 42, verse 29. We'll start there. How's that sound? So in 2000, uh, the New England Patriots were a mess, as uh, you probably remember. There's no doubt about it. Uh, They had lost six of their final uh, eight games in the 99 season. And they fired head coach Pete Carroll. Bill Belichick was hired into Pete Carroll's place, and he had a lot of work on his hands. One of the big obstacles in jobs for Belichick was to help refill this team with good players. Now, to the surprise of many, the Patriots franchise went with a quarterback in the sixth round of the draft. Well, it was surprising for many reasons. Well, the first reason was that the Patriots already had three quarterbacks, right? And uh, their quarterback at the time, Drew Bledsoe, was only 28 years old. Uh, You're talking about a quarterback who is doing pretty well and is in the height of their career. The second problem was the quarterback that they were looking at was slow, and he had an unathletic build. This guy ran the 40-yard dash in 5.3 seconds, which is well below what a quarterback should be doing. But the team uh, saw something in this young buck. They saw something in this young buck that others didn't see. They loved his mental makeup and his leadership skills. One of the uh, personnel staff said this, He said, it's not that we said we wanted to draft a tall, lanky quarterback that ran a 5-3-40. Those weren't the traits we were looking for. We were looking for mental makeup. Bill Belichick did a lot of homework on him, along with our staff. Watching the tapes, he was the guy that would go in and lead them back to victory. And so, in the sixth round... Of the draft in the year 2000, the New England Patriots made one of the biggest steals in NFL draft history in Tom Brady. In uh, 2000, six quarterbacks were drafted ahead of Brady, and those six quarterbacks combined would start fewer games than uh, the GOAT would in his career. And of course, none of them would be wearing six Super Bowl rings either. Now, I could go on for 20 minutes highlighting all the accolades of the GOAT, but let's just be honest, I don't really know that much about sports, and you guys do, so uh, I'll avoid that, and we'll talk more about the fact that I love stories where individuals come out of nowhere, and they do something amazing. Do you love a good dark horse story? I think we all do. I think we love to hear about that no one from nowhere that rose to the top and won. Uh, 
Setting things aside, you know, in the world of sports, journalists and fans alike like to see these types of things, but the Bible also loves a good dark horse story. It's interesting this morning as we look at the next part of Genesis, we're going to watch a dark horse emerge. Uh, God will use this dark horse to mend a broken family. Now remember, God is a God who loves reconciliation. He loves to see people be restored. He loves to see them be raised up again. He loves to see them brought back together in reconciliation. Two weeks ago, we were asking the question, how in the world is this family going to come back together again? And we noticed in Genesis chapter 42 that the process of rebuilding began with the awakening of the conscience of these brothers. This week... We're going to watch this dark horse take the remaining steps of reconciliation through all of these verses in Genesis. So let's look at the first step that we see in the text. This is a principle. Trust must be rebuilt if reconciliation is to happen. We pick up the story, if you haven't been along with us, the ten sons have returned back. Their one brother left. Simeon is in Egypt. Uh, when they went down to Egypt, they were going there to buy grain in a famine. Little did they know that the official that they were dealing with was actually their brother Joseph, who they sold into slavery. Uh, he sets up a number of tests on these brothers. He sends them back to Canaan and tells them to bring back his brother Genesis, uh, Benjamin. So we pick up their explanation as they come back and they talk to Jacob. Verse 29. When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that, he had happened, uh, all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and Take grain from the famine of your households, for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. Now let's remember a little bit about Jacob the father. You guys remember him, right? We covered him in a series not too long ago. Uh, we called it Unfinished. Jacob is a complicated man, isn't he? He's very complicated. His name means deceiver or trickster. And one of the big lessons that Jacob had to learn as we were following his story is that you cannot wrestle with God and win. Now, the key to dealing with God is the paradox of surrender. When you surrender, then you win. You gain by losing. Now, it's interesting after Joseph that Jacob experiences a serious setback in life. He had all of his love and his affection placed into this son, Joseph, and, and he's been stripped away. And so now he has applied a double portion of that into the even younger son, Benjamin. It's not a healthy love, right? It's what we would call an obsessive doting. It's the kind of love that a parent 
places into a child that is more about the parent than even the child. Uh, In today's terms, we call it helicopter parenting. Now, Jacob's grief has caused him to be clingy. He's developed this negative, glass-half-empty outlook on life. You see that in verse 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would like to take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Really, Jacob? Is it all about you? Is all of these things that are unfolding coming against exclusively you? Now, it's understandable that a father would fear sending his son into harm's way. What father wants to send a son into the face of harm? But remember what happened in this now over 100-year-old man's life. He had received a great promise from God, hadn't he? If you look back at Genesis 35, verse 10, look at God changing Jacob's name. He says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And then God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your body. Do you hear the promise there? A nation and and a company of nations. God had made this promise to him so long ago. So Jacob's not just struggling with grief here. He's struggling with a faith crisis. Do you see that? A faith crisis. He had developed a fatalistic outlook of the world. He had started believing that the cards were against him. He believed that Murphy's law was now the law of his life. If something could go wrong, it would go wrong. He's the type of guy that wakes up on Saturday morning and goes out and says to himself, I'm going to wash my car this morning, and then it rains that afternoon. He's the type of guy that goes to the mechanic and says, I hear a sound. He gets to the mechanic, and this car just sounds like it's perfectly uh, running. He's the type of guy who spreads on the peanut butter and jelly onto the bread and then it falls out of his hand and of course it doesn't land bread down, it lands peanut butter and jelly face down. That's the fatalistic view that Jacob has developed here. Well, good old Reuben comes up with a brilliant idea. Dad, Dad, you've got to trust me. I've got this great big plan. You ready for this, Dad? Kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. Can we just uh, address that suggestion with one word? Dumb. I mean, Reuben, go sit in the corner somewhere, man. You've got to stop talking already, all right? Jacob doesn't even dignify Reuben's grand plan with a reply. Instead, he responds, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Have you ever thought that maybe Jacob had caught wind of the deception involved with these sons? You ever uh, 
tried to keep a story together that wasn't quite true with 10 people. There, there tends to be little holes, little complications in the story that arise. It makes me think of this story I recently heard of four college sophomores who were uh, slated to take a chemistry final. Uh, the night before, instead of studying, as sophomores can do in college, they decided that they were going to throw a big party, because that's a great idea, isn't it? And so they throw this big party, they sleep in the next day, they completely miss the chemistry final. Now they're in a panic. Uh, they run to their professor. They beg. They tell the professor that they had been out driving and they were on their way to the exam and oh, miraculously, we got a flat tire. Uh, so we couldn't make it to the exam. Well, the professor listens to their story and says, okay, well, why don't you come back in and we'll take that exam together. So that night they study super hard. They give it the best effort that they can possibly give. As they go into that test, they're put into separate rooms. The professor gives each one of them a booklet and they open up to that first question, which is uh, t describe some of the chemical elements in the periodic table. And they say, yeah, each one of them in their own separate room. Super excited. I'm going to ace this test. Five points, boom, done. The next question for 95 points, as they flip over the pages, which tire? You've heard this one, Donna. It's a good one, isn't it? Yes. Jacob was a little self-centered, but you cannot fool a fooler. I don't think he ever bought the, tr uh, the, the story and uh, offering up the grandchildren as collateral damage. No, that's not going to work in this situation. So the oldest son fails the exam. What about Simeon and Levi, the second and third oldest sons? Well, Simeon's somewhere back in Egypt. Levi doesn't say a word. Instead, an unlikely brother that we have not heard much from in this story suddenly starts talking. Genesis 43, verses 1 through 5. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain and they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Who's Judah? Well, Jacob, still trying to cling to control, tells them, Why don't you go down and and just buy a little food, as if the quantity of food is going to change this official's mind. And Judah comes into the conversation with a firm, clear response. Dad, we love you, but we're not going down there without Benjamin. There is no deal that's going to be made if we go down there without Benjamin. Who is this guy? Well, like I said, he's number four. When you think of 12 sons, number four is stacked somewhere in the middle, isn't he? 
Let's take a quick look about all we know about this guy. And I got to tell you, it's not a very pretty picture. The first thing we come to realize about Judah is that he's the one that suggests the plan to sell Joseph in the first place. And then there's this entire chapter devoted to him, Genesis 38. And what do we learn about him in there? Well, he leaves his family to go partying with the Canaanites. He hung out with a rough character named Hurrah. He marries an unbeliever. He's a poor spiritual leader, and it leads to the death of two of his sons. And then he visits a prostitute who turns out to be his daughter-in-law, and he has twins with her. What? Wait a minute. Are you saying that this guy is going to be the dark horse? Is he going to be the guy that God uses to restore this broken family? Yes, that is what I'm saying. But listen, I didn't write this story. God did. And I'm glad that I'm not the one writing other people's stories because I regularly count people out way too soon. God, on the other hand, When he looks at a life, he knows what his grace can do. God loves to write people back into the story. We pick up verse 6. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. As you read Judah's response, I want you to notice that Judah's response is going to awaken Jacob's ability to trust. Verse 8 says, Judah said to Israel. Now, this is an insight that you might miss in the text. In chapter 42, the name used of Jacob is Jacob. The deceiver, the trickster, the one who tries to hold all the cards. He's in control of the situation. But here in Genesis 43, as Judah is interacting with his father, we see Israel back on the scene. Israel, Jacob's covenant name. This is the name used of Jacob when his changed character is shining through. What is it about Judah's reply that brings out Israel from Jacob? Well, it was genuine. It was real. Reuben offered up his sons. That's not trust building. Judah offers up who? Himself. You're familiar with the expression, you've got to have skin in the game. Judah essentially says, I'll take the boy down and bring him back. And if anything goes wrong, you can hold me, me, personally responsible. 
Friends, that's leadership. Weak leaders put someone else in the crosshairs. Strong leaders say, I will be personally responsible. Personal responsibility is one of the key factors of trust building. Judah's strong, clear words, willingness to put himself on the line in this situation is just what Jacob needed to become Israel. Now Israel goes into full patriarch mode. Verse 11, Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and, and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. And here comes the patriarch that we love, right? May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. I love that prayer demonstrating Jacob, even when he is feeling weak, is beginning to trust his God with his son and with his broken heart. You can hold on to things. Jacob had this way of taking all of his life and his circumstances and, and trying to control them in this little box. He held on to it and he clung on to it, but God, God prized those hands, doesn't he, from that little box. And you know what else God does? He opens the box to expand our world by deepening our faith and growing our vision. And God uses Judah to do that. Another principle Growth must be demonstrated. Now the sons, they quickly set off down to Egypt. The time is pressing. Simeon has been in jail for quite some time. <laughs> Everybody kind of forgot about him, didn't they? They get down to Egypt, and while their reception is a little more uh, good, <laughs> it's also a little bit ominous because this Egyptian official invites them into his house to have a meal with them. Now what could be his intentions? The brothers are scared. Is this guy calling them in there to set them up? Is he going to enslave them if they go into his house? Have you ever noticed something about life? It's funny how our sins tend to color how we read the intentions of others. If you're regularly engaged in the sin of gossip, when you look across the, the room and you see two people talking, doesn't your mind tend to track like, I wonder if they're talking about me over there? Well, these brothers enslaved Joseph, and now their first thought is that this official may enslave them too. So they approach the official's chief servant to smooth things over. Uh, verse 20, Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, and when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We did not know who put this money in our sacks. He replied to them, peace to you, 
Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your fathers has put treasure in your sack. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Now Joseph is watching all of this, and he must have been pleased with how this situation was unfolding. Not only did they come back for Simeon, but they also sought to return the money. The brothers he had known 20 years ago, well, they probably would have left Simeon behind and pocketed the money. This is evidence of genuine growth. Do you see that? When we think about reconciliation and family dynamics for a minute, think about how important trust and integrity how crucial those things are to happy, healthy home dynamics. In family dynamics, we can fall into patterns that erode the bonds that, the, that hold the family members together. In this story, as we're watching it unfold, we've seen some of those destructive things. Favoritism, jealousy, deception, betrayal brought into this family. But if a family's going to move forward, there has to be bandwidth for growth. You see that? Joseph is giving his brothers the opportunity to grow. Notice he didn't dismiss them outright. Notice he didn't say they can never change. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever needed time to grow? If you ever needed someone to be patient with you, someone to kind of look over something you've done, if you ever needed someone to come say something to you at a time when you didn't want to hear it, sure you have. Sure you have. And so do others. You know, if Christians are truly the people who have been radically changed by the gospel, then Christians should have the biggest bandwidth for change to happen in a person's life. We know that change is hard work. We know that it's soul-searching. We also know that God is in the business of change. And notice Joseph. He's patient. He has room for people. He affords them the opportunity to grow. Let me ask you, do you do that? Or is that person kind of forever stuck into that mold in your mind of who they were 10 years ago, 5 years ago? Are they forever frozen in time like that? Now, I'm not saying be reckless either. Joseph doesn't throw caution to the wind here. He's incredibly careful and slow. He takes these well-laid steps to see the character in his brothers. And so as the situation continues, his next step is to determine, are they still jealous types? So let's step into the brothers' shoes for a moment. Remember, they don't know who this guy is, okay? So the official comes into the room, and through the translator... He asks questions of their father. Is your father well? The old man that you spoke of, is he still alive? They said, yeah, your servant, our father is well. He's still alive. Oddly, as they watch this person hear their replies, he seems to look relieved when they say that. 
Then he looks at Benjamin for a long time, and he sounds somewhat choked up as he's speaking. Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? Then he looks directly into Benjamin's eyes, and he says, God be gracious to you, my son. And the official just walks out of the room, and he doesn't come back for quite some time. Odd. It must have been really odd, but this whole dinner party was odd. Why was it odd? Well, because Egyptian officials don't invite Canaanites to dine with them. That's just something that doesn't happen. We see that in verse 32. It explains, They served him, Joseph, by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is what? An abomination to these people. Well, then another odd thing happens. Each brother is perfectly situated around the table according to their birth order. Henry Morris, he's a commentator, he notes that the official had 39,917,000 different options of seating these guys around the table. Okay, this is no mistake. The odds are 40 million to one. How could this happen? And if that isn't odd enough, then verse 34 explains portions taken to them to the table. Benjamin's portion five times as much as theirs. Again, just imagine it. Reuben receives his share. Then you got Simeon, then Levi, then Judah, and then on down the table until finally we come to Benjamin. And they just start bringing out the cohogs, and there's a big hunk of striped bass on his plate. And then this lobster, like 10-pound lobster, sat down in front of him. And who wouldn't forget the big bowl of clam chowder? And Joseph, as all of this is happening, he just sits back and he watches. And he must have smiled. Because there's no scowl over in the direction of Benjamin. In fact, one of the brothers pats him on the back and says, Benjamin, they must have known that you got a hole in your leg, my friend, because look at all this food. I'll bet you three goats that you can't finish it all. Verse 34, And they drank and were merry with him. The old guys, they would have been jealous. The new guys celebrate in someone else's favor. The stage is now set for the final exam. The brothers have grown, but now Joseph must see just how far they've come. Consider this thought. We have not reached real repentance until we are presented with that old temptation and we firmly say no. One writer explains, we do not so much desire to be accurately informed about our past sins and to get right views of our past selves. We wish to be no longer sinners. We wish to pass through some process by which we may be separated from that in us which has led us into sin. So what is this? third principle of reconciliation. Well, it is this. An act of self-sacrifice solidifies real reconciliation. Joseph gives them a final test. The final test is simple. He asks his chief servant to plant a silver cup into the grain sack of Benjamin. 
He would then pursue the brothers. He would expose Benjamin as a thief. He would then see how the brothers respond to the situation. So when they were first accused, as this chief servant comes to them, they band together and they uh, vehemently defend their innocence. They say, why does my Lord speech, speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be your servants. I mean, there is a logic to what they're saying here, isn't it? If we brought you the money back, why would we steal money from you this time? Only they just didn't realize they were a little foggy on the idea that the entire deck, uh, deck was stacked against them. And so what happens? Well, each brother opens up the pack with indignation. The oldest brother opens up his pack. See, told you so, on down the line. Innocent, 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 innocent. Until they finally come once again to Benjamin. The gleam of the cup in the grain must have made these men sick in their stomachs. Verse 13, they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Bodie Bauckham Jr. captures well the immense pressure these brothers were under in this moment. He writes, remember these are not young boys these are middle-aged men with families that depend on them. They are shepherds with flocks to be tended, husbands with wives and children waiting for them to return. When, he, when the cup emerges from Benjamin's sack, it is impossible to accurately depict the level of despair that must have uh, fell on them. The words, they tore their clothes, are incredibly restrained and understated. You see how impossible the situation they're in is right now? I mean, you can't weasel your way out of this. You have one of two options. Option number one, well, you just kind of move on and you say, oh, I guess Benjamin just threw the bad straw to the straw deck. I'm just going to go back home and be with my family. The second option is that you stick with your brother. You see it through with him. Uh, you say, come what may, Whatever happens to him happens to me. Now, I want you to listen closely to this. The second option sounds like the type of thing a real family says of one another. They head back to Egypt. The official looks livid when they arrive. He is barking at them in Egyptian. What is this you have done? Do you not know that I am a man who can practice divination? Just an aside on that, I don't think that Joseph is actually practicing divination. He's playing a part. So how are they going to resolve it? How are they going to move forward? Who's going to stand up and say something? Who's going to be a, an advocate for Benjamin? Well, notice who doesn't say anything. Reuben. Quiet. Simeon, not a peep. Levi, mouth shut. Once again, this dark horse 
This fourth brother takes a lead role in the family. Judah speaks directly from the heart. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup was found. I love the rawness. There's nothing that we can say. God is punishing us for something that we did long ago. That's how I understand that phrase, God has found out the guilt. He's pretty convinced that no one stole the cup. He sees this as an act of retribution. Their now 20-year-old sin has finally come back upon them. He's right about that reality. God does not forget those 20-year-old sins. However, he's wrong about God's intentions. God's intention in this moment is not eternal punishment. He doesn't want to put them under the press indefinitely. God's intentions are recovery, restoration, reconciliation. That's why he won't let go of those 20-year-old sins because he wants us to move beyond those 20-year-old sins. And so Joseph brings Judah to this hinge moment. A hinge moment where it could either lead to ruin for the family or more grace. Verse 17, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Here's your out, Judah. You can just go. You can just put this all behind you. You can just leave Benjamin behind. Put the dark horse models for us what real love and sacrifice and self-giving looks like. It's the longest speech in the book of Genesis. The great reformer Martin Luther once wrote that he wished he could learn to pray to God like Judah prays to Joseph in this scene. He begins by rehearsing all that's happened up to this point, telling them about what he's asked them to do, who their father is, how Benjamin is near and dear to the heart of the father. He's Poor father, he says, cannot bear to lose another son. Then he explains in verses 30 and 31, Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. I love this. Do you know that you can learn to love flawed people? You can learn to look past their flaws, even the flaws that someone has demonstrated throughout their life that have deeply hurt you. I mean, think about Judah. Never dad's favorite. Never going to be a key player in the family. Always struck playing third fiddle. No, not even third fiddle. Fourth. And yet, as he explains the situation, you can see that he has finally come to terms with who his father is. He loves dad, flaws, and all. Friends, that's a picture of the heart of God. That's God's character. God is the type of God who loves the unlovely, cares for the flaw, commits to those who have ignored him, even denied him. Judah is rising to immense spiritual heights here. He's the Tom Brady of reconciliation. 
We come back to a question I asked two weeks ago. What kind of act could bring this family back together again? 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What's the act? It's self-sacrifice. It's substitution. Broken families need a Judah. They need someone who is willing to lay down their rights. They need someone who says, I'm willing to lose so that the family can win. Too often, reconciliation does not happen in families. Why? Because everyone stalls. They even sabotage reconciliation by their own stubborn self-will. Two parties never come together because the two parties say, I'm not willing to lose so that the family can win. But Judah recognizes, again, the paradox of surrender. You gain by losing. You get everything when you're willing to surrender everything. Families need that. They need Judas. But what about lost sinners? What do people who are far from God need? Well, Judah turns out to be a greater dark horse than we initially realized. He's not in line with Tom Brady. (laughs) He's far superior. He's a bigger deal. Brady's broken a lot of records. Judah is a distant father to the promised Messiah who would come to save the world. As you read Genesis 37 to 50, I think we've been led along by a little red herring. You ever seen those plots and ploys in mystery novels? I think we're meant to think to ourselves as we're reading the story, look at that Joseph. I mean, this guy is unhindered. He's sticking it through with God. He's going to be the next patriarch in the family. Judah? Who would have given Judah the time of day? We don't even hear his name mentioned from Genesis 38 onward. And like I said, every time he is mentioned, it's not a pretty picture. Why is he the next man up in Christ's line? Why? Because God loves to demonstrate his perfect sovereign wisdom through dark horses. He elevates the lowly. He leads the wayward. He reforms the depraved. God loves to turn our expectations upside down by showing forth his values and not our values. In fact, God's son would be a dark horse too. Isaiah the prophet tells us as much. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing, hear that? Nothing beautiful 
or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. Friends, Jesus is the better Judah. He's the dark horse that no one expected nor did anyone want. I mean, think about this. Forget about his miracles for a moment and his teachings. Strip all of that away. If you were to look at Jesus, Isaiah says, you wouldn't have taken second notice of him. You wouldn't have given him a second glance, a second thought. You would have just moved on. Yet, 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 he's the Savior of the world. He is the Savior you wouldn't have looked for, but the one you desperately need. He is the leader who leads gently, the healer who goes deeper than the superficial issues. He reaches down to the heart and heals that which is most broken in us, our sinfulness. He is the suffering servant who lays down his life for the sake of others. Isaiah says, the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Have you entrusted yourself to this dark horse? Have you put your faith in him, this better Judah? Friend, the only way you can receive the benefit of Jesus' work is by trusting him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says what? You will be saved. Can I encourage you to do that with me this morning? Would you bow your head? If you've never trusted Christ, I'd like to give you the opportunity to do that as you pray along with me.